you to draw your sword and turn to Romans chapter 6 as we continue our study of this powerful New Testament letter. Today I want to preach a sermon you're hearing that's entitled Dying to Live, Dying to Live. Romans chapter 6 verses 1 to 14. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 6, allow me to begin at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but you are under grace. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. There are several significant distinctions that separate Christianity from all other world religions. For starters, it is only Christianity that claims its leader rose from the dead. This reality of the resurrection of Jesus is not just part of our story. It's the central part of our story. In Acts chapter 4, we are told that the apostles with great power testified to the resurrection of Christ. Later in this book of Romans, we will read that if we confess with our lips Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. The reality of the resurrection is central unto our salvation. So Christianity does not rise and fall upon a particular set of doctrines or beliefs or moral insights or even a life philosophy. No, everything about Christianity rises and falls upon the resurrection. This is central to who we are. There is no other religion in the world that claims that its leader rose from the dead. But furthermore... Not only does Christianity claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, it is only Christianity that grants salvation by grace alone. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are other world religions that claim salvation. 
They claim that there is salvation in the afterlife, but every other world religion says that this salvation is attained by your works and your merit. It is only Christianity that says that salvation that God gives is a free gift of God. It is not based upon our works. It is based upon the accomplished work of Jesus. It is not based upon our merit. It is based upon God's mercy. So that throughout the New Testament, we are reminded that we are justified fully and freely through faith in Jesus Christ. We've spoken about that word justification on numerous, on numerous occasions. But the word not only means the forgiveness of sin, but the declared innocence of Christ being bestowed upon you. So that because you are justified, you are seen as being robed in the innocent righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ both now and forevermore. And all of this is a free gift of God. It is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone, there is no other world religion that claims such a gift of salvation. It is only Christianity that says that we are saved by God's gracious gift. Now, if you stop and think about that, it just might stand to reason that some might conclude, well, grace could be abused. I mean, if it's true that we are saved by God's grace and not by our own works, not by our own merit, then it could be understood as a license for loose living. It could be rendered that someone may conclude that if, if I just sin all the more, then all I have to do is ask God to forgive me, and by his grace, he will. For if grace is applied to my sin, then if I sin more, then more grace will be applied. So the thought would go that if a little bit of grace is good, then a whole lot of grace must be better. This is the train of thought the Apostle Paul is driving when we come to Romans chapter 6. For the first five chapters, he has built a robust argument claiming that there is no one righteous, no, not one. That regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, old or young, it does not matter. All of us are thoroughly and utterly sinful. And it is only by the accomplished work of Jesus Christ that any of us are saved. And we are justified freely by faith. Paul has built a robust argument. So here in chapter 6... He anticipates the rebuttal from the crowd. Romans is set up in such a way that, that it's as if Paul is speaking to someone and this other someone is asking questions along the way. And the, and the, and the book of Romans is a constant conversation between Paul and that other person. And here in chapter 6, verse 1, the other person asks a question, what shall we say then? Should we go on sinning? so that grace may abound? It's a legitimate question. I mean, if you honestly take the gospel as Paul presents it, this is a logical question that stands to reason. If grace is applied to sin, where there's more sin, there's more grace. And if grace is a good thing, then should we sin more so that more grace will abound? And as soon as the question is articulated, the answer is given, by no means. This is the strongest rebuttal possible. By no means, absolutely not. It can also be rendered, may it never be. May it never be misunderstood that we could abuse God's grace. May it never be misunderstood that the gospel is a license for loose living. May it never be understood that somehow we ought to sin more so that more grace may abound. 
And then the question becomes, well, why? I mean, Paul, you respond quickly by saying, by no means, may it never happen, but why? And the answer is in verse 2. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The reason we don't keep on sinning more and more and more so that more grace will be applied in our life is because we died to sin. Sin is dead to us. It was John R.W. Stott who said that just as alcohol is no longer a temptation to a dead alcoholic, and just as gossip is no longer a temptation to a dead gossip, so your sin, Christian, is no longer a temptation to you because you have died to your sin and your sin is dead to you. Our sin is dead. We no longer live in it. We no longer live in its power. We no longer live under its sway. The reason we don't keep on sinning as if to say, let's sin more so that more grace can be applied to our life is because we are dead to sin. Sin no longer has power over us. And at Calvary, not only did God break the power of sin, but God dealt your sin a fatal blow. Your sin is dead. So that at Calvary, we realize it's not only a historical event, but it's a personal experience. Let me say that again. The cross of Calvary is not only an historical event, it is a personal experience. It's a historical fact. It's, it's a marker in history that on a certain Friday in the third decade of the first century, Jesus of Nazareth went stumbling and staggering through the streets of Jerusalem with a crossbeam strapped to his back. He went outside the city gates of Jerusalem. He went up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there the Roman soldiers executed him. They crucified him as a criminal. And Jesus died on that faithful Friday. And then his dead body was taken off of the cross and placed into a grave. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. For you can go and look into that tomb and you will not find the body and the bones of Jesus because they are not there. He has risen just as he said. See, my friends, this is an historical event. But it's much more than that. It's more than just a event in history this is something that's quite personal to me because it was on the cross of Jesus that my sin was nailed and maybe your sin nailed I can tell you this much the sin of the redeemed the sin of a of a world of lost sinners was nailed to the cross it was there at the cross of Jesus that Jesus died for our sin. It's not just historical, but it's personal to me. It was my sin that was nailed to the tree. I've quoted Horatio Spafford numerous times, and the reason I do it is because it's just a great quote in his famous song. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Paul will say in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. So I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I am dead, my sin is dead. And the only thing alive inside of me is the resurrected Christ. It is Paul who will also write in 2 Corinthians that anyone in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Friend, if you are in Christ, 
then your sin is dead to you. It's been nailed to the tree and you have been given new life. Isn't that what Paul says in our passage in verse 4? Anyone in Christ has this new life? The word translated new, it means startling freshness. It's a word that means that it is unlike anything else. It is new. It is completely different. It's different than the old life that you have in Adam. It's a new life that you have in Christ. It is totally different for What you inherited from Adam was a life of sin and death. What you inherit from Christ is a life of forgiveness and life. We have a new life in Christ. Paul says, did you not know that you were baptized into the death of Jesus? That as Jesus died, so did you. So did your sin. You were buried with Christ and you were raised with Christ. He uses the imagery of baptism. We are buried with Christ in baptism. We are raised with Christ to walk this newness of life. I think it's very important and very intentional that Paul uses the imagery of baptism. He wants every person in the first century in the Roman church listening to his letter being read, he wants every person to think back to their baptism. In the same way today, I want every Christian listening to my voice to think back to your baptism. Christian, do you remember that day? Do you remember that experience? Do you remember the sights and the smells that were associated with it? Do you remember the feelings that you had? Maybe you got baptized in a creek at a rustic denial. Maybe you got baptized in a lake. Perhaps you got baptized in a baptistry very similar to the one that is behind me. Maybe you were baptized as a child after vacation Bible school. Maybe you got baptized as a teenager after summer camp. Maybe you got baptized in response to a revivalistic message that took place during a revival and you came down the aisle and you gave your life to Christ. Maybe you gave your life to Jesus when you were young. Maybe it wasn't too long ago that you gave your life to Christ and you're just now walking with him over the last few months. Friend, do you remember your baptism? Do you remember that you were buried with Christ in his death. You were raised to walk newness of life. Paul says, remember your baptism. Remember, Christian, that that picture is a great symbol, but it's even greater than a symbol. There's something powerful in that, for we are constantly reminded that we have been buried with Christ and all of our sin has washed away. And those who've been buried with Christ, we have the hope of resurrection because as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we will be raised from the dead. Very symbolic of when we come up out of the waters of baptism. We don't keep people buried in the ground under the water, even though some moms and dads try to give us money to do so. We don't keep people under the water, do we? We raise them back up in the same way that as Jesus was not left in the ground, he was raised to new life, so we have the hope of resurrection. We are raised in this new life in Christ. Anyone who lives this life, according to verse 7, has been freed from sin. For you know that once you died, you're freed from sin. We are freed from sin. Sin. Paul uses that phrase and he speaks it intentionally. We are freed from sin. He does not say we are freed to sin. There's a big difference. We are not freed to sin more. We are freed from sin. 
from the power of sin, from the sway of sin, from its allure in our life. We are freed from sin. So then Paul writes in verse eight, now if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Jesus is the first fruit of resurrection. I did not say he was the first one to be resurrected. No, you've read your Bibles. You know that in a place like uh, the Old Testament, it was the widow's son of Zarephath who was raised from the dead. In the New Testament, we read of Jairus' daughter being brought back to life. Even the best friend of Jesus, Lazarus, will be raised from the dead prior to Jesus going to the cross. But all those examples have something in common. Those people were raised only to die again. Jesus was raised never to taste death again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Only the sons and daughters of Adam does death have mastery over. But those who are descendants of Jesus, we no longer are slaves to sin. We have been freed. We are free to love. We are free to laugh. We are free to smile. We are free to serve. We are free to worship. We are free to forgive. We are free to live at peace one with the other and free to live at peace with God. We are free. If the Son has set you free, then you, my friend, are free indeed. You are free, child of God. This past weekend, we had a marriage conference. Dale and Gina Forehand came to lead it, and Dale made a statement on a couple of occasions. He said that Jesus is an expert in freedom. Jesus is an expert in freedom. He knows how to set people free. He knows how to liberate the captive. He knows how to remove sin from our lives so that we may be buried with Christ and raised with him to walk this new life. We have been set free. So then in verse 10, the death that he died being Jesus, he died to sin once for all. Now when Paul says that Jesus died once for all, he's not in this verse saying that Jesus died once for all people. He is saying that Jesus died once for all time. In other words, the death of Jesus will not, cannot be repeated. It is a one singular act that is sufficient. Jesus died once and for all time. And the life he lives, he lives to God, which is eternal. It is free. It is forever. So that in Jesus, he died for us. So that in Jesus, we might live through him. So Paul is answering the question, why should we not just let sin abound in our lives? Because after all, salvation is a free gift of God. It's by grace that we have been saved. So if we sin, grace will be applied. So if we sin more, then it might stand a reason that more grace will be applied to us. Why shouldn't we do that? And Paul says, by no means do you do that. Because you have died to your sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. It was Haddon Robinson who said, whenever you preach you got to answer two questions. What and so what? That's what people want to know. I mean, what does the Bible say 
And so what? So what does it say? Why, why does it say it? What's the point, right? And so Paul, in good preacher fashion, he's been talking about the what. And now in verse 11, he turns to the so what. So what's the point, Paul? And the point is this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You, Christian, are dead to sin and alive to God. You're dead to sin and alive to God. You are dead to sin and you're alive to God. He says, I want you to count yourself. That word count means to reckon. It means to render. It means to consider yourself. What's interesting is that this is a present imperative. In the verb tenses of the ancient Greek language, um, there's the imperative, which we have in English, which means a command. It's in present tense. And we think to ourselves, we know what that means. That means that the action takes place right now. Yet in the Greek language, the verb tense not only communicates when the action takes place, but it communicates how the action takes place. So then the present tense, it's not only in the moment, but it's a continuous action. It's not just in the here and now, but it's perpetually moving forward. It's a continuous activity. So in the present tense in the Greek language, it's describing something that is taking place in this moment and it's going to continue to take place in all the moments to come. So here he says, I want you to count yourself. I want you to reckon yourself. I want you to render yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Now, what does this mean practically? It means that every day, maybe every hour, maybe several times every hour, you've got to remind yourself on a regular basis that you count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin and alive to God. Dead to sin and alive to God. Why do you have to continually repeat that over and over in your life? Because we have amnesia. Because we forget. Because we live in the overlap. For we know that even though our sin is dead, it's not extinct in this world. And we're going to the place called heaven where sin is not only dead, but it's extinct. I've said it this way before. We live in the world of some more and we're going to the place of no more. We live with some more sin and some more sadness and some more sickness, but we're going to the place of no more sin and no more sickness and no more sadness. We live in the overlap. We live with some more and we're going to the place of no more. Our sin is dead, but it's not extinct in this world. So because it's not extinct, you have to remind yourself, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. You've got to preach your sin, telling your sin, you're dead to me. You have no power over me. You have no sway in my life. You have no pull in my jurisdiction. You have no parameters in my existence. I am dead to you. You're dead to me. And I'm alive to God. Paul says you've got to remind yourself of this over and over and over and over and over again. It's present tense. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's a continuous action. That you tell yourself, I'm dead to sin. I'm alive unto God. Paul continues, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Just like James, the brother of Jesus said that an evil desire is a desire that's outside of the submission to the Spirit of God. 
A desire that's outside of God's control in Christ is an evil desire. And here Paul says that we're not to obey evil desires. You don't have to give in to your impulses. You don't have to fall prey to your cravings and your desires. Do not obey your sin nature because sin is dead to you, but you're alive to God. Verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. Do not offer your body to sin, but offer your body to Christ. In verse 13, the word offer is mentioned twice. I don't want to get stuck in the weeds, but I want you to track with me just for a second. When Paul says, do not offer the parts of your body to sin, once again, that word offer is a present imperative. It's a command in the present tense, which Paul is saying, you must continually not offer your body. You must continually fight the good fight. You must continually, as long as you have air in your lungs, you must continually offer your body unto the Lord. Do not offer your parts of your body unto sin, but rather, second time, offer your body unto the Lord. Now, the second time he renders it offer is written in the aorist tense. We don't have anything like this in the English language. The aorist tense of the verb communicates an action that took place in the past and it's completed in the past. So you offer your body unto God. It's something, Christian, that you did in the past. And in the past, you did it completely. You did it thoroughly. You did it exhaustively. At the moment of faith, you gave Jesus full control of everything. It's the aorist tense. It took place in the past. When were you saved? I don't know. It could have been five minutes ago. It could have been five years ago. It could have been 50 years ago. But regardless, it's in the past. And it's an action that took place in the past. And it was completely accomplished in the past. So Paul is saying, you don't need to be saved again. You don't need to be saved over and over and over again. It's an event that was completed in the past when you offered your body unto Christ. And because you offered your body unto God in the past, you continually do not offer your body to sin. You you, you feel the the battle that goes on? You have fully offered yourself to God, but even here in the moment, I've got to continually not offer offer myself to sin. He speaks about the parts of the body as instruments of either wickedness or righteousness. The word in my translation that's rendered instrument is not a very good translation. The actual word is weapon because Paul knows that we're in a battle, spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is real. The devil has come to kill, steal, and destroy, and he wants to wreak havoc in your life, Christian. So do not use the parts of your body as weapons of wickedness, but rather use the parts of your body as weapons of righteousness. All you got to do is look through the Bible and you'll find examples of people who use their body as a weapon of righteousness. Think with me. It is God who used the mind of Joseph to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. It is God who used the ears of young Samuel to call him into ministry. It is God who used the mouth of Isaiah 
to proclaim that the Christ child will come. And Isaiah prophesied of this 700 years before Jesus was born in the Bethlehem barn. It is God who used the feet of Paul to literally take the gospel to the then known world. We find example after example after example in the Bible where people use the parts of their body as weapons of righteousness, for they offered themselves unto the Lord. But my friends, can we just be real this morning? Not everyone, dare I say not anyone, in the Bible always offered themselves fully unto God's service. There's some of the heroes of the faith, some of the saints of the scripture, who offered the parts of their bodies as weapons of wickedness. It is Moses who offered his hands to kill an Egyptian. It's the eyes of David that looked lustfully upon a woman taking a bath. It's the feet of Jonah that ran in the opposite direction of Nineveh. It is the mouth of Peter who denies even knowing Christ. It's the lips of Judas who betray the Son of Man with a kiss. We find example after example of people in the Bible And sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. Sometimes they offer the parts of their body unto weapons of righteousness. Other times unto weapons of wickedness. And Paul concludes his argument when he tells the church, you need to repetitively not offer yourself unto wickedness, but you need to uh, offer yourself fully unto God. Why? Because sin is no longer your master. He doesn't write it, but he implies it. Your master is Jesus. I don't want anybody to get offended with Paul using the language of a bondservant. Because Paul is saying all of us are bondservants. All of us are slaves to something and all of us are slaves to someone. Either we are slaves to our sin or we're slaves to our Savior. Either we are slaves to ourself or we're slaves to Jesus. All of us are slaves and bond servants to somebody but you, beloved, you, Christian, you are no longer bound as one under the sway of sin. You have a new master. You are a descendant of Jesus. So we are no longer under law but under grace. The word under means uh, that we are under submission. We are under the power. We are under the sway. We are not under the sway of the condemning nature of the law of sin and guilt and shame. For the law was never given to us as a path of salvation, but the law was given to us so that we may see our sinfulness. Oh, you are not under the power of the law. No, as a Christian, you're under the power of grace. And so this is a passage about victory. We have victory in Christ. But before I sit down, I've got to tell you that while I am greatly encouraged by this passage, sometimes I'm disheartened by this passage. Because why is it that godly people do ungodly things? If we are no longer to sin because sin is dead to us, If we are 
under the control and sway of grace so that now no longer is there an allure of sin. How is it that godly people can still do some ungodly things? How is it that Christians can cheat on their income tax and cheat on their spouse? How is it that Christians can lie to their boss and scream at their children? How is it that Christians can be guilty of greed and guilty of gossip? How is it that those of us who are in Christ so that our sin is dead, we're alive in a new life of the resurrected Lord, how is it that godly people can do some ungodly things? Let's get a little bit closer to home. How is it that you can do some ungodly things? How is it that I can do some ungodly things? Let me ask you this morning, do you ever get weary of your waywardness? I'm not asking, are you tired of somebody else's sin? I'm asking, are you ever tired of your own sin? Have you ever, are you ever tired of the sin that keeps creeping up in your life over and over and over again? Are you ever sick of your sin? Are you ever frustrated with your failings? Or am I the only one in the house who can just be honest before God and say, God, I know I've got the power. I know that I'm in Christ. But why is it that still the foul stench of death pulsates in my life sometimes? I am to be dead to my sin. But why is it that sometimes my sin is raised from the dead? Why is it that godly people can do some ungodly things? I'm not asking for you to examine the life of somebody else. I'm not asking for you to look to the life of the person on your right, on your left. I'm asking for you to look to the life of the one that stares at you in the mirror each morning. I've told you before that the Bible is not given to us as an example of models of morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. We lift up the Bible and we see ourselves as sinful as we are. Why is it, how is it that those who are dead to sin can raise that sin in their life? Why is it that those who have a new life in Christ constantly reach back to the old life in Adam? Chapter seven is gonna answer those questions, but I can't just leave you dangling there. I don't wanna to steal too much of the thunder of Romans seven. But before I take my seat, can I just offer a few reasons of why I think that sometimes we fail to live in this victory? Let me offer three. Number one, sometimes we fail to live under the power of Christ. Christian, do you know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you in your darkest moment? In the darkest moment, when sin is looming, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. All you have to do is preach to your sin. You've got to be the best preacher you know. You've got to be the best preacher in your life where you say to sin, sin, you're dead to me. Stay down. You're dead to me. Don't rear your ugly head. You're dead to me because Jesus nailed you to the cross. He escorted you to the tomb and he said, stay there. And Jesus got up. Your sin did not get up. Jesus got up and Jesus stared at your sin and said, stay there. And by the power of Christ, sin has to stay there. So maybe... Maybe sometimes we just don't live under the power of Christ. 
The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, beloved, is available to you. So that Paul will say in his Corinthians correspondence that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. But when you are tempted, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so that you, you can stand up under it. Sometimes we fail to live under the power of Christ. Do you know what's available to you? It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I'm telling you, if, if you talk to your sin in Christ, your sin will listen. That sin that rears its ugly head, if you preach it and say, you're dead to me, it will have to listen because you're proclaiming Christ. Some of us fail to live under the power of Christ. Secondly, sometimes we fail to live under the word of Christ. We say that we are people of the book, but I fear that sometimes we don't stand on the promises because we don't know the promises to which to stand. We don't know the book. We don't know the promises of God. We don't read the book. We don't allow it to read us. It's not all important how many times you read the Bible, but how many times has the Bible read you? We need to stand on the promises of God. You remember what God said to Ezekiel? He said to Ezekiel, I want you to eat this scroll. The scroll was the Bible. I want you to eat this scroll. I want you to devour it. I want you to digest it. I want it to work its way and nourish your body. I want you to be strengthened by it. Eat this scroll. Oh, friends, how many times do we just nibble on the text? How many times do we just snack on the scripture? Now, don't get me wrong. A scrap of scripture can be mighty helpful. A little snack of the scripture can sustain you for quite a while. I'm evidence of that. I know that. But how many times, instead of feasting on God's word, we just take it as a finger sandwich, just finger food. We just kind of walk and talk and just occasionally. No, the Bible is given to us so that we may devour it, eat it, be strengthened by it. And the result is that we can stand on the promises of God's word. Once again, I've told you this illustration before, but I keep telling some of the same illustrations just because they're so good, right? Henry Blackaby. So there's a dog fight for your soul. There's a good dog and a bad dog. Do you know which one wins? Whichever one you feed. If you feed your soul with the world, worldliness will result. If you feed your soul lust, lustfulness will result. If you feed your soul of yourself, selfishness will result. But if you stuff your soul with God, godliness will result. If you stuff your life with the holy things of God, holiness will result. Which dog wins? Whichever one you feed. And sometimes we fail because we do not stand on the promises of God. Let's just do a little comparative study. And you do it by yourself at home later on. But let me just ask you, how much time do you give to reading this word and allowing it to read you versus how much time you give to Netflix? How much time you give to the Instagram? How much time you give to work? How much time you give to your hobbies? How much time you give to your recreation? If you were to compare how much time do you devour the Word of God? And maybe, maybe we're so anemic when it comes to our dependence on the Word of God that we fail. We fail to stand under the power and the Word of Christ. Third, maybe we fail 
because we fail to live under the grace of Christ. Can I just remind you of the Bethany Cemetery? It was there that Jesus got word that his best friend Lazarus was sick. And instead of leaving and going immediately, he stayed where he was for a few more days. By the time he got there, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. By now, the body's beginning to stink. There's an aroma of decay that is a foul stench coming all over the tomb. John tells us on two occasions that Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. The reason he tells us that is because it was religious folklore to believe that in those days, they taught that the spirit of a person could hover around a grave up to no more than three days. It's nowhere taught in the scripture, but you know religious people who aren't biblical, don't you? So there were some people who believed that Lazarus' spirit just might hover around there one day, two days, maybe three days. And on two occasions, John tells us that Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. What does that mean? It means it's beyond all hope. And Jesus visits the Bethany Cemetery. And Jesus, the author of life, peers into death. And Jesus ordered for the stone to be rolled away. And in a commanding voice, a booming voice, Jesus, the author of life, said, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out of the grave. And he was bound Because Jesus' next words were, unbind his hands and feet. Then Jesus said, take off the grave clothes. I think sometimes we fail in our fight against the adversary. Because we reach back to the wardrobe of Adam. We reach back to the grave clothes. We've got a foul stench of death all over our lives, all over our body, and Christ has given us grace clothes. We have at our disposal the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a free gift of God. There is no boundary to what God can do. God can make a way out of no way. God can do something that is miraculous, and God gives us his grace. His grace is at our disposal so that we can remind ourselves and remind sin, you're dead to me. I have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder how many today just need to take off the grave clothes. Some of your grave clothes, it looks rather nice. Some of y'all are dressed to the nines in your grave clothes. But you need to take off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes that can only be made possible through the resurrected power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a passage about victory, friend. And you, Christian, can have the victory Because you're dead to your sin, and your sin is dead to you. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. So you have victory. Sometimes we fail to live under the power of Christ, the word of Christ, the grace of Christ. But this morning, I just just wanted to remind you that I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory. How he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning and his precious blood atoning. And I repented of my sin and I won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me before I knew him. And all my love is doing, he plunged me to victory beneath that cleansing flood. And what Christ did to me, he can do to you, friend. He can give you victory over your past, victory over your present, victory in your future you just have to say to your sin you're dead to me and you say to Christ I'm alive unto my Savior because we have died to sin and we're alive to Christ 
Maybe there's somebody here who needs to trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. Maybe there's somebody here who is a believer, but you're robed in the foul stench of grave clothes. Put on the grace of Christ. Maybe you're here and you need to make a decision for the Lord. Maybe you need to come and join the church. Maybe you need to pray for someone you love who is wayward. Whatever it is, you respond in obedience to the call of grace upon your life. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, we're just trying to be real before you today. That we know that our sin is dead. But sometimes we raise it to life. Father, help us to be in Christ. Help us to live under your power, under your word, and under your grace. Help us in this moment. May we respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.